This is Adam Hill, the minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. I always tell our church family, read your Bible. You'll be a better Christian. My prayer is that this Bible-based sermon will help you follow Christ more faithfully. Let's learn together as we study the Word today. I am going to ask you to read with me from John chapter 6. As is our tradition, we usually ask people to stand if they're able for the reading of the Word. This is a story you should probably know well if you've spent any time in church uh, because it's one of those stories that shows up in every one of the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. The Bible says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy food, buy bread for all these people to eat? Now he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to just have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. <clears throat> Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Heavenly Father, you feed us. You sustain us. You hold us. You care for us. You show us how much you love us. Father, help us to trust you more. Help us to believe you. And to believe in your son whom you sent that we may have life. Father, may we be yours. And we ask today that you would speak, Father, for your children are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So like I said, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is actually recorded in all four Gospels. And there's something unique about this miracle that says something. It tells us something about Jesus, who Jesus is. And in turn... It tells us something about who God is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Jesus says, that every gospel author thought significant enough to include. Now, I want to go ahead and tell you, this is the only one of Jesus' recorded 37 miracles, not including the resurrection, that, that is included in every gospel. It is unique. And it tells us something about God. We could say something like this, God cares about our needs. That's true. In the other Gospels, it's mentioned that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He sees the crowd and it says, having compassion on the crowd, he says we should feed them. Jesus cares about our needs, amen? Okay, but that doesn't seem to be John's point. I roped you into that one. That was unfair. How about this one? Jesus can meet our needs. Jesus doesn't just see our needs, doesn't just care about our needs. Jesus can meet our needs. I mean, sure he can, but we've already seen that already in the healing miracles. And this, this doesn't really seem to be John's point either. In 6.2, we read that the crowds were gathering because Jesus had been healing the sick. As the crowd swells, Jesus asks Philip what he thinks they should do to feed the group. Philip, in good deacon of finance form, offers up, we don't have money in the budget for that. <laughs> At this point, the disciples have already seen Jesus heal people from sickness, have already seen Jesus cast out demons. But those powers, as amazing as they are, are not going to feed an army. And then we meet Andrew. Now Andrew, he's a disciple. His zeal may be a little greater than Philip's. But I think his wheels turn a little slower. <laughs> because... He speaks up and says, I've found a kid with five loaves, five barley loaves and two fish. And I'm thinking there's probably a kid right next to him going, hey, mister, that was mine. You know, like, I, I brought that. Like, I didn't, what are you talking about? You didn't find anything. I brought this. But at least, and, and at least Andrew catches up to himself. He says, I've got five loaves and two fish here. But that's probably not enough. Probably not. Probably not, Andrew. Good call. Here's the amazing part. It's enough. It's enough. Maybe what we need to hear is that if we take what we have and we put it at the feet of Jesus, Jesus will work wonders and it will be enough. Now that's a sermon right there. There's a lot of us who are kind of wanting to see God work wonders in our lives and in the lives of those around us, and we don't give him anything to work with. We just say, you do this, and then I'll know you care, and I'll place my trust in you. Come through for me, and then we'll see how it goes, this whole relationship thing. Andrew at least knows if I give him just a little... Watch what God can do with it in our own lives. When we take what little we have and we place it at Jesus' feet, Jesus can work wonders. 
He says, have them sit down. And then he took the loaves, verse 11, and gave thanks. Okay, that's the Greek word eucharisteo, from which we get Eucharist. Okay, so Jesus gives thanks. He breaks the bread and distributes the bread to everyone. What's it sounding like? Sound a little like the Lord's Supper. Sounds a little like communion. And for John it is. Because if you read chapters 7 and 8, this, seven, this is where he's going. He's going to all of a sudden, the, the, the end of chapter 6, he's going to start talking about, well, you should eat my bread and drink my blood. and It's going to get weird. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The other gospels let us see that Jesus has his disciples pass out the bread and the fish. You see, the disciples have a role to play in this. God does something amazing, and then he gives it to them and says, I want you to go share this with everyone. Jesus provides, and the disciples distribute. Okay, I've said this to you before, but we're a car town, so this is the language that I think may translate. Here we go. Jesus is in manufacturing. We're not in manufacturing. We're in distribution. Jesus manufactures. He hands it to the disciples. It's their job to distribute. Okay. Jesus is in manufacturing. We're in distribution. After he's fed them, he says, okay, y'all go ahead and gather up all the pieces that are left over. As a matter of fact, he says, let nothing be wasted. And by the time they finished gathering, they see there was, there was more leftovers gathered than there was food to begin with. And that let nothing be wasted. Where he gathers, they gather as leftovers more than what they began with in the first place. That, I think, is John's real point. What he's doing that's unique. He's showing you that Jesus can do what only God can do. Jesus is not just a healer. Jesus can create. That, that, that God is creator. Jesus is that. Jesus creates. Okay, that, 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 that there is this word in the Hebrew Bible, barach which means to create. And it's a word that your Hebrew Bible uses quite a few times, but it only ever uses it when it refers to God. Humans, it says, can fashion things, that we can build things, that, that, that we have the ability to put things together and assemble things, but it never uses the word create, bara, talking about us. Only God can create. And so here is Jesus doing something that only God can do. Remember when Jesus asked Peter where they would get enough food to feed the crowd and the question seems, the question that Jesus asked, it kind of flies under the radar. Where are we going to get it? He says it to Philip. He says, where will we buy enough food for these people to eat in verse 5? Where? 
from where would we get enough food? And that, that, that word there that's interesting, it's the word pothon, and, and it roughly translates to from where. From where will we get enough food to feed all these people? From where, right? I started noticing something, that, that, that that's not the first time Jesus has used that word. As a matter of fact, it's shown up quite a bit given given that we're only six chapters into this gospel and we keep seeing it. Think about this. In 148, Jesus recognizes Nathanael and Nathanael says, "I, I, I think I saw you. And Jesus says, from where do you recognize me? From where? In 2.9, when Jesus turns water into wine, the head steward asks, from where did you get this wine? In 3.8, Jesus, describing the Spirit of God, tells Nicodemus that the wind blows where it chooses, and though you hear it sound, you don't know from where it comes. In 4.11, the woman at the well says to Jesus that the well is deep, he has no bucket, and then asks him, from where will you get the living water? If I move beyond this story, as a matter of fact, in chapter 7 and verses 27 and 29, in chapter 8 and verse 14, in chapter 9 and 28 through 33, the discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus centers on whether or not they know from where he comes or whether they will admit from where he comes or whether or not they will believe from where he comes. Here's what's amazing. In chapter 19 and verse 9, Pilate is going to finally ask Jesus, from where have you come? With each use of the question, each answer is the same. From where? From God. Read through them. Every time the answer is divine. That John is saying something has happened. From where are we going to get the food to feed these people? The answer is from God is where we're going to get it. And you say, how do we have access to him? And Jesus says, I can do it. Bring me those loaves and fish. I'll show you from where we'll get the food. This is the word that was with God and that was God. And John is asking you, are you paying attention? Now, once the people see it, they want to make him king. But Jesus withdraws from them. In fact, in order to make his escape under the cover of night... Jesus walks out onto the sea and over to where the disciples are rowing in a boat against the wind and they're frightened, but then he, he, he calms them down. He gets in the boat and it's smooth sailing from there. And then the crowds wake up the next morning, notice that he's gone. They jump in the boats to go to the other side of the lake. And when they find him, they have a pretty wild conversation with him. The crowd finds him and they said, Rabbi, when did you get here over here on the side of the lake? And Jesus answers them, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. 
Jesus responds with a pretty harsh critique of their motives. I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate and had your fill. Now, it's possible that one might argue the point with Jesus that the signs kind of had nothing to do with it at all. Like, Jesus, that's unfair to say the signs didn't have anything to do with it. In verse 2, we already saw that there were crowds gathering precisely because they'd seen him perform signs while healing people. Then they saw the miraculous feeding, and they wanted to make Jesus king precisely because they saw what he could do. That's not exactly what Jesus means here. He's not saying they didn't witness the signs he performed and become amazed. Jesus is saying they didn't understand the signs. Jesus is saying that you only looked at the sign, you didn't look at what it was pointing at. When he says they're here for another meal, he's saying that they don't understand the signs for who they pointed to. They only understood them in terms of what they got out of it. Oh no, this sounds like a sermon. You don't come here because you beheld the glory of God and were captivated by his power or love. You came to see what else you could get done for you. Jesus tells them. You didn't see the healer. You saw how getting your loved one healed made you feel. You didn't see the one who drives out demons. You saw how your own loved one was restored and felt better. You didn't see the one who created in order to feed you. You saw the one who could give you all the bread you ever wanted. You're making the subtle yet deadly exchange of desiring the blessing more than desiring the one who blesses you. Okay, I got about five of you right now. I like it. I'll start with five. Jesus changed the whole world with 12. Five's pretty good. You're making the subtle yet deadly exchange of desiring the blessing more than desire, desiring the one who blesses you. How often instead of being captivated by God's glory, do we find ourselves simply showing up to consume God's blessings? John 6.26 speaks a prophetic word. To God's church here in America, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill, where we so often trade the announcement of the good news, the declaration that God has done in Christ and by his spirit for us and in us and through us, what we could never do for ourselves, the good news. We have traded that for the crowd-pleasing announcement of a plethora of great church-related programming. And are we substituting religiosity, which can be great in all the worst ways? Are we substituting religiosity for righteousness, which we can only attain by being captive to Christ? Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he said, a Christian is either a missionary or a fraud.
Are we training disciples to be missionaries of the good news or consumers of religious goods? Billy Sunday, who definitely has a top five preacher name ever. <clears throat> Billy Sunday says it like this. He said, a church of make-believers will soon beget a generation of non-believers. If Jesus showed up and he said, Adam, I want you to show me my church. I wonder... Would I show him the pages and pages of programs only to hear him ask me, well, yeah, but do you have any disciples? We noted earlier how Jesus had his disciples distribute what he had made to the crowd. And in the other gospel, he even says to his disciples, you feed them. And I'd say, well, we do have some some pretty good cooks. Church, I need you to understand I have nothing against good programming rightly used. Nothing. We are blessed to have some gifted folks that are good at making good programming that can be rightly used. But you need to remember, we need to remember that the Apostle Paul did not write, I want to know a good children's ministry, or I want to know a good youth ministry, or I want to know a good Sunday school program, or I want to know a strong praise team. I want to know a mission-minded coffee ministry. I want to know a top-shelf ladies program. I want to know a good preacher he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising, sharing in his suffering and being conformed to his death so that I might somehow know the resurrection. Well, then, Adam, what, what do you want us to do? Which, interestingly, sounds a lot like the question in verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Okay, then what do you want us to do? And Jesus answers them. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Your work is this, believe in me. If the programs point to Jesus, lead us to Jesus, feed us with Jesus, and send us out to distribute Jesus, then they are good and they are worthwhile. They are on purpose. That's our word for the year, right? But if somehow in all of our busyness for a moment we communicate that by doing religious things we're accomplishing our righteousness then we're lying to ourselves and singing hymns while we do it. Do we believe that this is our work to believe in the one he sent? Do we believe the announcement that God in Christ has done what we could never in a million years of doing church do for ourselves, even if we did it well? Do we really believe that? Like, 
deep down it's the center of my life, believe it? Do, I, do deep down I believe that I'm not living for the blessing, I'm living from the blessing? Because that's at the center of this thing we call church. Or are we trying to engineer our own or our children's salvation so that we can be comfortable? Making our faith about us the long way around. Are we trying to secure our best life now? Now here's another wild turn. I think the crowd gets it. So they ask him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The crowd gets it. They ask, they ask for a sign. Now, throughout the gospel, we see that Jesus, throughout the gospels, we see Jesus doesn't really do very many signs on demand so that people we believe will believe. Jesus tends to do signs because people believe. On the other hand, these people don't just ask for any sign. They start that way, right? It starts off, oh, well, what, what kind of sign are you going to give us? But then they quickly latch in on verse 31 and say, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. They know exactly which sign they're talking about. They said, how about you do the manna thing? Now, they may be thinking of the bread he distributed earlier, sure, but I think it's deeper than just another meal of bread. It could be that they've picked up all too well on Jesus' discussion of the glory of God on display. Manna. That most merciful and mercurial of God's provisions. What is it? The bread from heaven that was more than simple food. It was just what they needed at the time they were in the worst need. It was the saving grace when all hope was lost. It was the blessing of sustenance when no other source of life existed. It was the proof that God was with you and had not forgotten you. And that you were positive that you, just at the moment that you were positive you were left alone to die. Manna is hope against the worst that life can throw at us. Manna is protection from the worst possible end. We need manna. And if you've ever tasted it, you know just how troublingly fantastic salvation tastes. And you want it more and more and more. They want manna. They, when they ask for manna, you need to understand this though. They're not simply asking for bread. When they ask for manna, they're not simply asking for bread. They're asking for exodus. They're asking for freedom. They're asking for liberation. They're asking to be set free from the oppressors. They're asking to be set free. They're asking not just for bread. They're asking for exodus. And they are asking Jesus for hope.
Kenny, go ahead and come on up. Jesus looks at a desperate people who were willing to make him king because of one meal. And he realizes that they need more than food. Because they realize also that they need more than food. They need sustenance and life. And maybe they've stumbled on this really important fact that he's the only one who can provide that. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I would lose none of those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at that last day. Amen. Jesus is the God of the new Exodus. Are we willing to walk out into the wilderness and be led by his presence? Or have we come here for something else? If you're seeking Jesus today, come and be set free by his power and his glory. Come and join his new exodus. And we that know him will celebrate as you pass through those waters to be set free from what has oppressed you. And, and, and we who know him will join you as we share together the bread of life that is our manna. And we in Christ will share in the most unbelievable thing hope. Let's stand and sing. To learn more about Rochester Church of Christ, check out www.rochestercoc.org. There you can find links to other teachings, opportunities to join our family and serve, as well as ways to support our work. It truly is a wonderful time to be the church. I pray that you're blessed. Remember, you are loved, and you are chosen.